Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Art Chang. Art is a candidate in the 2021 New York City mayoral race. He took some time out from his home in a blizzard-paralyzed Brooklyn to share his personal story as well as some of his perspective, ideas, and plans for what the next mayor needs to do. Art has a clear-eyed take on the challenges and opportunities facing the city. While I could have easily spent another hour exploring his vision, I hope you get a sense of the types of aspirations and expectations we should all have for all of our cities, wherever you are listening from. And now, Art Chang. It's nice to see you, Art. Thank you for making time. Thanks so much, Larry. Nice to be here. So um, what's the weather like in New York today? <laughs> well, the snow has resumed it is lightly snowing right now. Um, I think the forecast called for 18 inches yesterday, but based upon my son's efforts shoveling, I think it's more like two feet. Oh, my gosh. So uh, where in New York are you? I'm in Brooklyn in Prospect Heights. Oh, okay, great. I lived in, uh, in Carroll Gardens for um, a little over a decade. Um, mm. So I, uh, I grew up outside of New Haven and spent about 20 years in New York. Mm. Um, I always tell people I was I was gentrifier zero um, when I first moved to New York in in the mid nineties. I lived on the Lower East Side and uh, I was the only face that looked like mine. And then I moved to the East Village, sort of Alphabet City, um, and then I moved to uh, Carroll Gardens. And every time I felt like I was the pioneer. And so it's either a warning if I move to your neighborhood that your your rent's about to go up, or um, if you're a realtor, you should probably follow me around and. Uh, <laughs> And there's money to be made, but uh, yeah. Well, that's, that's funny. I mean, I, I think I can actually beat you. Um, I moved to New York City in 1985, and I wow. moved to Brooklyn. Um, and I moved specifically to Fort Greene. Oh, wow. Because Spike Lee was down the street, and um, it was, you know, the home of hip-hop. And I just wanted to be in the creative capital of the world, and uh, Brooklyn was it. And um, it's funny, you know, I felt um, definitely um, I was the only face that looked like mine for miles uh, because there were very few Asians at the time. But um, the funny thing is that, you know, I grew up in an all white school district in Akron, Ohio, where I learned that if I saw a group of white boys coming toward me, I'd actually have to cross the street. Mm. And people who were very who were who have always been looking out for me through actually through the end of high school were typically black people, black teachers. And um, when I moved to New York, you know, Fort Greene and Clinton Hill and then Prospect Heights, you know, very predominantly black neighborhoods. And I felt very comfortable and very safe. And I was. Yeah. Those are beautiful neighborhoods and they were uh, beautiful neighborhoods and such a hub of, um, of sort of not only black community, but a real, I, I don't know the right way to articulate it, but a sense of, um, you know, a sense of mobility, you know, there was, mm. there, it was, it spanned um, diverse uh, income ranges. Obviously I don't mean to idealize it, but a real yep. sense of, um, of mobility and accomplishment and just, just a, it's a beautiful part of Brooklyn and it has been for a long time. Um, well, to back up a little bit, um, can you tell me a little bit about how you arrived in Akron and before that, how your family came to be in the South? Um, I would love to hear that part of your story. It's a, it's a super interesting story. It's, I, I almost like to think of it almost like a, like a thorn birds of Asians. <laughs> um, my, uh, my father, um, who's kind of an extraordinary person, um, uh, was a, uh, was a very poor, came from a very poor family and he was um but he was very smart and he ended up um being a, a waiter in the u.s army officers mess in korea uh during the at the end of the korean war and one of the soldiers uh befriended him one of the officers and um a couple months after the guy was posted back to the states my dad got, got showed up to work and they handed him a thin envelope and in that envelope 
was a letter offering him a full scholarship to Georgia Tech and a one-way steamship ticket. And um, he, the guy, it turned out the officer was a provost of Georgia Tech. So my dad wrote back and said, I'm coming. And he took the steamship ticket and he arrived in Atlanta in 1952. My mom came um, to the U.S. Uh, and she was from a very wealthy family. She was in the second class of women to go to graduate from medical school in Korea. And she came to finish her medical training in Philadelphia in 1954. And what was extraordinary about their journeys and how they got here is that because my dad was from such a poor background and my mother was from such a wealthy background. But at the time, Asian immigration was restricted. So there was no flow of people from Asia into the United States. Um, it began to loosen up in 1965. Um, but at the time, there were fewer than 10,000 Koreans in the whole United States. Wow. And so the students got to get together and they would, they would have these you know, kind of multi-city parties just so they could meet each other. And my dad um, uh, has some friends who persuaded him to come to a party in Philadelphia. And he met my mom and he was smitten. And uh, they ported for some short period of time. And then um, she moved to Atlanta. That's how they got there. So my dad was, uh, he was, got his BSMS and PhD from Georgia Tech. Um, and then along the way, he went to div school for a couple of years. Didn't wow. finish that, but um, he was, I think, the first Korean to graduate the PhD in systems research engineering from Georgia Tech. Wow. And so what did that, um, what career path did that lead to for him? Was he an engineer? So what that did for him is he um, ended up getting a job at Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. Mm -hmm. um, because what he could do was he could take vast sets of data and use computers even then, the, the sort of huge mainframes that would fill a room, and he could interpret that data to improve designs of tire treads. Mm. So that's how we found it in, in Ohio. It's how we found ourselves in Akron, which um, is uh, and maybe still is the rubber capital of, of the world because of the leading tire company, American Tire Companies, are headquartered there. That's incredible. Wow. Um, so the, the story about um, the limits on Asian immigration. I, I don't think it's widely known that those limits lasted quite so far into the modern era. I think, I know for a long time, I thought of it as sort of a vestige of like 19th century fear and politics. What finally loosened up those limits? Well, it was the civil rights movement. You know, the, um, the sports movement actually are among my earliest memories. Um, watching TV, watching the, the movements, um, the marches, the protests. And um, I remember my mother saying, you know, you need to see this because these folks are risking their lives and their safety so that you can be more equal in this country. And it was because of that civil rights activism that I think laid the groundwork for equality for all Americans. And with that equality, it became impossible to maintain this sort of artificial constraint on Asian immigration. And so in 1965, it was relaxed, and then it was further relaxed later on. And in 72, I think, was the first time that Asians were truly allowed to, uh, to immigrate more freely. Um, so I, I think that every Asian in this country really owes a debt to um, black Americans for their struggles in the civil rights movement. And I think, you know, what is kind of maybe even lesser known is that that legal framework really set up the ability for us to have women's equality and then gender equality. Mm -hmm. so it's a truly kind of amazing thing. And I, I feel I look back and I go, you know, um, we really owe black people for this. And especially now looking back and going, you know, I look at my life and I've been so lucky and so fortunate to have so many blessings and, um, you know, really motivates me to, you know, work hard to make, uh, bring equity and equality to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how does that trajectory and that sort of background and, and your mom instilling the, uh, the value of the civil rights movement. How does that bring you to being um, a woman's studies major? What drew you to that field? Um, and <laughs> sort of what's the story around that? Yeah, so it's um, a great question. Um, 
So I, when I grew up in Ohio, I, I talked about some of the racial issues. You know, the my first teacher um, in kindergarten refused to teach me because her brother was fighting people who looked like me. Um, and then I grew up in a domestic violence household. So there are many times when I didn't know if my mother was going to be alive the next morning. And um, so I learned a few important lessons from that. Um, I learned um, that... Um, you know, my equality was based on equality for black people. I learned that equality for women begins in the home, that education is a door to freedom, but also because of the domestic violence, I also learned to fear the police as much as I wanted them to help. And so when I got to college, it was deeply instilled on me that I could learn anything I wanted, but I wanted to learn something that I was, was not going to be able to learn picking up a book and studying it on my own, like accounting or finance or something like that. I wanted to learn something that was new and different, holistic to what happened to me, how I am, who I am, how I fit into the world from a race perspective, from a gender perspective, culturally. And, you know, and women's studies did that. I mean, it really, to me, you know, it's called gender studies today, or we call sometimes called women's studies or feminism. And then to also look at how women saw themselves and their opportunities, and then also see everything through this lens of, of economic class, um, religion, culture, nationality. Um, and so I, I came out of it with this very deep appreciation for how complex societies are and civilization is, but also this kind of, I think, feeling of deep empathy that allows me to relate to people of all kinds. Uh, what was the, what was the new Haven that you, um, that you entered into and were you just there for the, um, the four years of school? Like what, you know, did, did that city have any, uh, any import to you or did it make any kind of mark on you? Uh, it certainly made a big mark on, um, now, I went to Yale uh, with a scholarship. I had a merit scholarship. I had student loans. I had some financial aid, um, and but I needed to work. So uh, first year working about 25 hours a week um, at Peabody Museum of mm. Natural History doing kind of exhibit design and exhibit construction and maintenance. Um, but my parents split up. They sold the home, and um, they could not cover the $2,500 a semester that they paid for my tuition. So um, I moved off campus and um, worked full-time. I worked full-time, went to full-time. I had two jobs um, for my the final three years in school, and those were all in New Haven. So I have a very different relationship to New Haven than um, – and the vast majority of Yale students. Mm -hmm. um, I worked in restaurants for three years and almost every job in a restaurant. I worked in architecture firms um, during the day in between classes and actually had a built project before I graduated. Um, but I, you know, came into contact with people from New Haven of all kinds. Um, I lived off campus in various neighborhoods surrounding um, Yale's campus and I uh, got to really get a better understanding of, of New Haven um, you know, both it's, it's beauty and, you know, certainly if you're a fan of pizza, could not be a better place to be. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was also a very poor city at the time. I think it was the seventh poorest city in the country. Yeah. Um, so you saw that vividly, you saw it in the projects, you saw it when you walked down the streets. Um, and I made a point of, you know, on the, on the times when I needed a break and I, I could ride my bike, I'd ride all around the city and you could see how, unequal it was and the conditions that people who were primarily black at the time were living in and this great wealth that was at Yale. And, you know, there were, I was a student activist as well and had a chance to work in some of the nonprofits there. Um, but that really, that really stuck with me. Um, and I think it was actually, you know, helped make me very comfortable moving to Brooklyn um, when yeah. I did. Yeah. Uh, Listeners of this podcast um, have heard me talk about this before, but, um, you know, obviously I'm from up there, so I have a bit of affinity uh, for New Haven. But uh, even that aside, it has a very fascinating history and it's, you know, a complex racial history. And, um, you know, it really was one of the, for better or worse, sort of test grounds for a lot of those urban renewal concepts and, you know, throughout the 60s and into the 70s. And I think a lot of, 
you know, a lot of neighborhoods uh, bore the brunt of that. And um, that whole experiment around the shopping mall downtown of putting yes. a, an inward facing shopping mall in a, in the heart of an urban area um, really sort of killed street traffic and the sort of vibrancy in that part of, of the downtown. So not all the experiments were successful. Um, in fact, you could probably argue that um, from certain perspectives, most of them were not, but nevertheless, it's a, it's a fascinating city um, with a really rich, interesting history, especially in the sort of mid late 20th century. So was there a Delta in time between um, your time in New York, I mean, your time in New Haven, and then when you subsequently went to New York? Uh, well, I saved, uh, I worked for the summer after I graduated to save money. And I moved, I moved as quickly as I could. I moved to, <laughs> to, to the city, um, you know, in September of 1985, uh, with $400 in my pocket, um, uh, a down payment, uh, a, a security deposit on an apartment, and uh, no job in hand. And I was just winging it. Um, and you could do that back then. I mean, it was uh, my rent at the time was, I think my first apartment, my rent was $267 a month. Um, I had two other roommates and we split it. Um, you know, so you could actually live very inexpensively, but oh boy, nonetheless, did I struggle. Uh, there was nothing about a women's studies degree. That was an easy path to um, a job. <laughs> and, and um, you know, uh, even though I worked in architecture, I didn't study it. And so that was a, a real impediment in terms of getting jobs in architecture firms. And so what were, what were some of the first sort of gigs you had when you got to New York? What were you doing to survive? Uh, well, I barely did, didn't. I mean, you know, there is a, I'll just tell you one, one, one quick funny story. Um, I used to go to this Jamaican restaurant um, at the corner of Claremont and DeKalb and became friendly with the owner there, Kathy. And one day I came in and I said, I ordered a meat patty. She said, she said, why only a beef patty? I said, because that's all the money. That's all I can afford. And so she went back in the kitchen. I heard some, some, some dishes and pots clanking around. And she came back with plate after plate. She loaded up the entire table with food. I said, Kathy, I can't afford this. I can't pay for this. She said, you will. Now eat up and we'll pack the rest of it for you to go. And she did that for me a couple more times. Um, that's part of how I got by at the beginning. Wow. was with the kindness of the community. Um, and I got a job. I, talked, I finally got a job moonlighting um, in an architecture firm in North Williamsburg in 1985. Wow. Um, and I would go to work at 6 and I'd leave at midnight. Um, I know what it's like to see a dead person lying in the street um, with the blood still pooling from his body. You know, I have run down that, done the turn down through the street. Um, it was, uh, it was quite, it was quite the experience, and that had not allowed me to kind of scrape by. And then I, I finally got a job in a in a startup that uh, imported um, energy efficient manufactured houses from Sweden, um, and then uh, worked my way up from being a drafter to the head of the design department to then being the head of operations for this small company. And uh, what do you attribute that ambition to? Oh, you know, it's, um, I think it's deeply ingrained in me. Um, my uh, mother, despite all the, uh, all the brutality that she went through, uh, she never gave up on her dream of becoming a doctor. And so even on nights, even on the mornings after um, nights where she was brutalized, um, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd find her sitting at her desk studying you know, hair perfect, you know, makeup, sometimes covering bruises mm -hmm. and um, a hot breakfast on the table. And there was no excuse for not moving forward. Yeah. And um, it was so clear. I mean, you know, my job as the oldest son was to set the path for my younger brother and sister. And my mother made that very clear. Um, I think I look back on that and go, that was, that was probably unfair, but um, you know, it, it really drove me and I think it really, you know, helped me, um, you know, get through college, you know, working full time and going to school full time, um, you know, enduring the four hours of sleep a night for, for months on end. Um, you know, so when I came to New York, um, you know, it, it, it seemed like I was actually not on vacation necessarily, but that my life was in a much better place, even when it was hard. 
Wow. That's in the, that's, that's an incredible, uh, take on it. Um, I understand you probably have, you know, the benefit of some, some years of growth and reflection and I'm sure work that you've done, but, um, that's a great place to, to get to and a great way to, uh, contextualize it. What would you, um, I, you know, I don't want to, um, I don't want to take our time doing sort of a, a deep dive on your resume or anything like that, but could you just talk about, um, sort of what was the, before, before entering into politics, what, what, what's been the meat of your career? How did you really, uh, how did you really establish yourself and what were some of your successes in New York over the years? Well, you know, uh, it's it funny, you know, I'm, so t- take a guy who doesn't have a practical degree, hasn't never took a, pr- a practical course in anything until I got my MBA in finance. You know, I, I would get the projects that nobody else wanted. <laughs> I would get the work that seemed really hard and kind of impossible. And people would say, well, let's give it to that guy. He'll probably fail, but let's have, let's give him a shot. And, um, and that's kind of what happened over and over in my career. And, and the thing that the thing about it was that not only would I get those projects, but I would be determined to succeed at them. Right. And um, by really almost any means necessary that were, that were permitted, um, you know, and, you know, kind of along the way, you know, one of the, one of the great lessons I had in my life was, um, you know, after working for this uh, manufactured housing company, um, it was sold. And, um, you know, I, I was able to convince the, 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 the sellers, the, my, my former bosses, to uh, set me up in, a, in a, my own startup. And um, I created a design build firm, got way too su- successful too early, uh, made a lot of stupid mistakes, and then went bankrupt and lost everything. And that was actually one of the best, maybe the best and most important learning experience in my entire life Mm -hmm. to actually fail miserably, completely, absolutely. And nobody to blame, but myself. And, you know, and so I look at the things that came after that and all of the ability I've had to kind of think through problems understand the different aspects, you know, the legal aspects and financial, the technology pieces, how these fit into existing organizations. It all came from being forced to look at what I had done and see the things that I'd done right. And then see the things that didn't go well and try to figure out how I was going to fix those things. Mm -hmm. So one of my great achievements, um, these personal achievements, after that was going to work for the city's corporation council's office. Um, I answered an ad in the New York times uh, for a, um, someone to do legal discovery management. I'd never done legal discovery management before or worked in a legal environment, but they're looking for somebody who had an architecture and construction background um, to be able to help manage the um, discovery process for the city's lawsuit against asbestos manufacturers. And um, I got there. Um, my, my, it was very clear very quickly that the talents that I brought and the experiences I brought to the table were actually not the most important things. Um, that actually it was a data problem that the city had over 10,000 buildings. And so how do you figure out what the claims are? Where are all the, where is all the asbestos? Who, who are the defendants that actually are the best able to take responsibility from a financial perspective, right? How do we start to figure this stuff out and collect evidence and make this work? And at the time, the city had this AS400 mini computer system with green screen terminals. And that's what the paralegals all used. So the way you'd get data analysis is you'd, you'd, you'd fill out a form, you know, and then by hand and request the data. And then you stick it in the window in the IT department and then five to 10 later, you get this one to two foot high stack of paper that you then have to go through and analyze. And having been in a startup, I thought this is really inefficient and it's not serving the purpose for this program. So I convinced my boss to buy me a dozen PC XTs and um, a license to DBase 2 Plus <laughs> um, and Alpha 4. And I created the first mini LAN, PC-based mini LAN inside the city's law department, configured the first relational database inside the city's law department. And then we started moving the data 
by hand from the mainframe system into this PC-based system. And within a matter of a, of a couple of months, we were able to start, you know, turning out data, turning out data on, on demand. And it was, it was kind of miraculous and it was really, truly satisfying, you know, because, you know, I did this because I wasn't afraid. I did this because I thought this was the right thing to do. And I did this because I could persuade my boss and others that, that we needed to do this thing and that I would somehow figure it out. And I did that. And those are the characteristics that kind of have, have kind of gone through my career and have allowed me to really move from industry to industry, from role to role, is that ability not to think that I'm an expert in anything, but to look at the problem, leverage the, the, the strengths of the experts around the room, bring new ideas in, sometimes from a related or different experience or industry, and then be able to sort of market and persuade people that we can actually achieve this thing that seems so impossible. Mm. That's a great, um, that's a great segue to pivot now into what you're up to today, which is obviously you're a candidate for mayor of New York city. And um, I would love to start this part of the conversation by asking you um, uh, how, what do you view as the, the sort of primary two or three challenges facing the city. And I wonder if you could couch them, if it's possible at this point to couch them um, in and outside the context of COVID, meaning um, what would have, what would have been there regardless of the pandemic and what has the pandemic exaggerated? Yes. So the pandemic has exaggerated everything. There's no problem that we have today that didn't exist before the pandemic. I would even say that that the city's um, the impact of COVID on the city um, was exacerbated by pre-existing conditions um, in the public health system and environmental health and all kinds of health issues, and I'll talk about that in 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 just a second. But the the thing that the city has to do um, really are what I would call short-term, medium-term, and long-term, but they're all based around it has to be based around a vision. And the vision to me is of a healthy city. I don't know if you know this or the listeners here are aware, but over the past decade, how we think about public health has changed tremendously. Most people still think of public health as as a response to disease or poor health. And we think about you know, very tactical solutions. Like if you don't have proper nutrition, well, you should get better food. You know, you have asthma, well, we should deal, we should try to figure out what to do about your living conditions. But the, where we are today is that people in public health realize that public health is about well-being. If you have a community that is healthy, it's a community filled with well-being where people have enough money, where there is lower stress, they can have less crime, they are appropriately fed, that they have opportunities to grow, that stress is reduced by not having things like you know, armed intervention for every crisis, uh, that we actually have ways to express ourselves through things like the arts. And we have to think then short-term, long-term, medium-term, long-term. So short-term, we got to address COVID because it is a symptom. We got to make, make sure that we are addressing it in a powerful way. We have to vaccinate everybody. We got to restore health to physical health to our communities. We got to protect essential workers. But as we bring the economy back, we have to remember that we have to vaccinate those who are exposed to a lot of people people like the workers in restaurants. So there's this kind of like logical progression of things that we need to do from the COVID front. Um, There's a lot of people are going to have lingering health issues. So we need to really strengthen the public health system right away to be able to identify and address those those lingering issues. Um, So that's just COVID. The other, and I think the truly scary thing to me is the housing crisis, the eviction crisis. You know, in New York City, we have over 200,000 eviction cases pending in housing court. Mm. 
If all those people were, were to be evicted, that would be like putting the population of Boston on the streets of New York homeless. It's absolutely breathtaking. And we also don't talk about the fact that small businesses are also subject to eviction. And we look at the situation and, you know, it's where this cancel debt, cancel rent movement came from. But the fact is the, the, the flow of money is super important. Like tenants, whether they're small businesses or, or residential, pay money to landlords. And what people forget are that a lot of those landlords are small. They own a building or yeah. five buildings. They are people of color. They are immigrants who are doing what you know, generations of white immigrants before them have done, which is to invest in real estate as a way to build assets and, and create intergenerational wealth. So the landlords are being affected by this. And you look at the system we have right now, we have a mortgage, we have an eviction moratorium in New York City at the moment that goes through the end of May. Um, it covers uh, residents as well as small businesses. We also have a foreclosure moratorium that goes through the end of May for smaller landlords. But you look at what's happening, right? Through these moratorium, it's not as if the rent goes away or no. the mortgage payments go away. They just build up. So you're taking the people who are the least able to sustain this debt, increasing this debt upon them with no way of actually ending the cycle. And so when relief comes in from the federal government or elsewhere, too much of that ends up going to landlords, right? Going to pay, going back into the system instead of being used as real, real relief. So what I, so, so this is a really, really thorny issue. We have to stop evictions, stop foreclosures. And by the way, along the way, the, the city is increasing property taxes and fees and other things that are making life even harder for small businesses, especially, and landlords. So we need to stop this. Um, and I have a proposal um, for how to do this. And it's essentially freezing the entire thing, just to say, stop the madness. Let's create a two-year period where we stop evictions, we stop foreclosures, we stop property tax increases, we come up with payment plans for those things, or deferrals for those things. Then let's collectively go to the mortgage finance industry and ask them to do a very simple thing. Extend the term of the mortgages by up to two years, creating up to two years of a payment-free period in mortgages. Then we can make that available to landlords who will pass that benefit through to tenants. So if you've taken the mortgages down to zero and then take the rent, therefore, down to zero, we can wipe out all of this accrued debt from, so from tenants and is that a, is that a, is that essentially like a mass refinancing? Like is, what, what's yes. the mechanism? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It is, it is a mass refinancing. Um, things like this were attempted in the, um, in the run up to the, to the financial crisis. Um, this, and the, 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 the financial system has only gotten more complicated since then. Yeah. So this would take a collective effort, but I know, I know that the banks would be eager to be partners in this because they still hold mortgages on their balance sheet, not as much as they did during the financial crisis. So they have a vested interest in not having to do write downs on, on mortgages that go into foreclosure. The other thing is that the, the banks, the big banks, because of the consolidation are also, they operate community-based you know, branch systems. And so if you now destroy your communities, you, know, you are not only taking away the people who would be banking at your branches, but you're also destroying the small businesses who would be taking out loans and doing other things. And it makes life much, much more difficult for the bank. So I think we have a natural ally in that. So, you know, we need to think kind of differently about this stuff. So that's, that's, so that's it on the, on the housing front, because if we don't do this and, you know, we are going to push these folks off the cliff and we are going to have a level of, of economic devastation that is really been kind of, we haven't seen in generations in the city and it will slow, slow down the recovery, make the city a much less attractive place for businesses to come and grow and, 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 and invest. And um, it's going to be absolutely difficult. I mean, so difficult. I can't imagine if this happens, how all those folks would actually be able to pull themselves off the ground yeah. and be able to restart their lives. 
So this is kind of not just a moral imperative, it's an economic imperative. It's something that is really key to the survival of the city. And then once we figure out, once we get that on track, then we have to think about how we take care of our people and position ourselves for this economic rebound. And we can do these things in parallel as long as we can actually freeze the evictions and stop this madness from happening. So the next pieces I have in mind are um, universal childcare. You know, women have been disproportionately hit by, by COVID. They've had to face this terrible choice of taking care of their children or getting a paycheck. We've had historic losses in the number of women um, in jobs. You know, we look at the advances that women have had over the past couple of decades economically and politically. And, you know, this, this has the potential of reversing a lot of those gains. And so we need to think about how we start to create an environment where, you know, women can, can go back to work and know that their kids are going to be safe, where women can finish their degrees or take care of family members who are, who are ill or elderly um, or just simply regain and restore their mental health. Um, and these centers, who, and, and so do it, universal child care can do that. It can also level the playing field for all children at the most critical point of, of child development. And it also will boost the econo economy of communities because our plan is to have community-based organizations where we take women who have historically been unpaid um, daycare providers, properly train them and license them and set them up to be their own individual entre entrepreneurs. This would employ thousands of women and then create these community-based centers, which could really be the, the you know, nuclei for delivering other types of relief you know, to families in need. Mm -hmm. what's, your, uh, what's your perception, or do you have, a, um, do you have an opinion as to how um, universal pre-K has panned out in New York? Um, has it been effective? Um, has it met the, um, the needs and the goals that it's set out to? Well, the biggest accomplishment was that it got done at all. Yeah, um, there are so many naysayers. There are so many mountains to move. Um, you know, it was it was it was implemented far more quickly than anybody thought was was possible, mm -hmm. and it was done because you know I think De Blasio very smartly identified the potential of community based organizations and existing nonprofits, and he just leveraged that and then grew them. Um, so that was a big win. Um, uh, I can't recall the exact percentage of, of families, but it's somewhere around 70%, I believe, of families who, are, um, who have uh, eligible children who had their kids in, you know, in this universal pre-K pre -K 4. But there are still some, some significant issues that, that the next mayor will have to fix. Um, the hours are 8 to 2.30 p.m. Mm. You know, schools end at 3.30. So if you have a child in pre-K 4 and you have a child in another school, it's, it creates a little bit of a, of a difficulty. Um, there is a pay parity issue where teachers who are in this uh, pre-K-4 were getting paid more than uh, teachers in, um, in child care, even though child care teachers are, were working from eight to six. Um, so pay parity is going to have to become super important. And then just finally, the, um, the um, ability for parents to find um, locations that were convenient to them, that had you know, openings, uh, was difficult because the city systems have never really worked well. And, and just kind of, you know, one general comment is that, you know, the, the, the next mayor really has to think about how we make, you know, all the technology systems uh, that serve, um, you know, families across the city, you know, much more user-friendly, where the data is accurate, where it's transparent, and when things go wrong, we can hold people accountable. Yeah, you know, you know I, there's, there, there are several other um, topics I want to get to um, with you, and I want to be respectful of the time limits we have. Um, but I do want to sort of close the loop a little bit on um, what you were speaking about in terms of the eviction crisis or the eviction backlog and what that could potentially mean for, for people on the streets. One, things that, one, one of the things that struck me when I moved from New York uh, to the West Coast um, really was the devastation of the, the homeless problem out here. Um, mm -hmm. I'm in the Seattle area where it's especially acute, but you really, you know, you can go up and down the West coast and, mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, it, it's nothing short of a crisis. You know, there's, 
tent cities on public streets, people living under overpasses, really in just any stretch of open space. And it's only been greatly, greatly magnified by COVID. Um, even, you know, downtown Seattle, there's, there's, there's people that have, I mean, in any other place, we'd call them shanty towns. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. a tragedy to see it in an, anywhere, but in a, an American city, it's, it's, it's the, the dissonance just is overwhelming. And um, I wonder um, what, what is the state of the homeless problem in New York right now? And have you seen a dramatic you know, uptick because of COVID? Um, you know, my perception out there was that we always had, um, you know, we always had a homeless problem in that we don't want anyone to be faced with those conditions, but it didn't have the same sense of being overwhelming as it does out here. And I wonder if you could just categorize a little bit what's going on in that particular issue. Yeah. So the biggest thing that New York state has going forward is that um, uh, there's in the, the there's a constitutional right to every person living in, in New York state to have a roof over their head. And the courts have affirmed this over and over again. And so it's, it's our obligation as a city to house everybody. Um, now that doesn't mean good housing or equal housing. Um, and, you know, for this current mayor and, and, and mayors before, you know, I think homelessness has been viewed as more of a nuisance and treated tactically and reactively as opposed to strategically. Yeah. Because we think, you think about what, what, what's happened now. We've got 100,000 homeless people. Um, you, you know, I think anybody who is knowledgeable about this or even just aware could have predicted that at the beginning of COVID, we'd have an economic crisis. And then that the, the, the most vulnerable people would have started being affected immediately. So we had, you know, mental, mentally ill folks who became homeless. Um, we had then, you know, you know low-income folks, um, uh, undocumented um, residents. I mean, it is just a terrible situation. And um, so we could have predicted this and we, we should have had a system in place that thought about this strategically. You know, the city's population over the past 20 years has grown by over a million people. We've had somewhat of a decline over the past four years um, because of the affordability issue. But during this 20 year period, we actually did not have any real increase in low income and truly affordable housing. Mm. You know, there is middle income housing, there is work housing for working folks, but we haven't actually increased the amount of housing at the bottom end, even though the economic divide has widened so much. And, you know, so again, you could have looked at this strategically and, you know, and just said, this is a crisis already 20 years ago. And it's just going to get worse with this growing income divide. So we need to fix this problem. So the homelessness problem right now, and let's take, let's take a scale, let's take the, the size of this total crisis we have. 100,000 people homeless, 30% of whom are children. And by the way, pre-COVID, half of the homeless families were fleeing domestic violence. Half of homeless teenagers were fleeing gender violence in their own homes. You got 650,000 people living in substandard conditions in NYCHA housing that was built to, to, to accommodate about 420,000 people. And then you got this, you know, this, this potential eviction crisis for another 600 to 800,000 people. You're talking about like 1.5 million people. And that is the size of the low income crisis, low income housing crisis in New York City. And when you think about what this means, we're not just talking about the affordability for people who are, who are poor. We're talking about affordability across the entire spectrum. Yeah. That it's a supply and demand problem. We have to create more supply of low-income housing. We'll figure out who owns it and how, and how that works. But we've got to increase that, 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 that quantity because it also affects folks like artists. And I think about when I moved to New York City, the creative capital of the world, and who were the friends I had? What did they do? How did their careers develop? And where are they now? And for so many of them, it was, allowed, gave them a foot in the door. They struggled just like I did. They found a way. They did okay. And then as costs rose and the industries and, and the people started to move to different places, so most of the friends that I had who were in the creative industries back in 1985, 1990, not, not most, but many, so many of them have moved out West uh, to LA and, other, and Seattle and other places. So 
to bring new, to bring the arts and entertainment back to New York, which I think is really the soul of the city. You know, we have to really think about how we provide places for these folks to live, because the artists, the arts community, are not the theaters. They are not the performance spaces or not the record labels. They are the artists and the creators and the people who work in post-production and work behind the stage. It's the whole community, the creative community that makes the art arts hum. And if they can't afford to live here, and then it's going to be much harder to, to fill those theaters and, and uh, produce independent movies and um, record, you know, have, have fledging artists coming here to make their name. Mm-hmm. There's um there's a few that you know as I was bringing myself up to speed on some of your uh your positions around the arts I I, I wanted to just dive into a couple of the points because they were uh, oddly enough I've been um I've been reading a few books lately about um various aspects of uh of jazz scenes in different cities around America in the 60s and 70s mm. um primarily Chicago, St. Louis and New York and they had some things in common. They had some things that were uh, obviously contrasting. But one of the things, um, you know, there were there were a lot of uh, collectivist movements uh, during that era um, of primarily black musicians, but not exclusively um, banding together to create these collectives where they were generally dedicated to education, um, elevating the form to play in um you know, to basically break the nightclub model and to yep. and to put the music into a better form and format. Um, but a few of the things that came up um, historically are things that, and that were successful 30, 40, 50 years ago are elements of, of what I read in, in your plans. And a, a really interesting one that stood out was um, your position on park permits. Mm-hmm. And um, that was something that was very effective in New York in the in the sixties and seventies for bringing, um, you know, diverse music, diverse culture, uh, diverse types of performance really deep into neighborhoods and engaging kids and families, and not having the arts be something that you know started with a capital letter and was sort of unattainable. It really brought um, it really brought different types of music and, and other forms into the communities. I wonder if you could talk about the role that park permitting plays in the arts. Um, yeah. So the, the, the permitting process in New York is, is far more cumbersome and difficult than it needs to be. Um, you know, there are obviously lots of street musicians or subway musicians. Um, I think there's a general tolerance for folks who perform even without permits. Um, but, you know, we think about, using these spaces in a post-COVID era, you know, uh, obviously, you know, maintaining social distancing is going to be super important, I think, for a long time, even after we have the widespread use of the vaccine. So we're going to need to think about um, how we, you know, enable people to perform in places like, you know, the Prospect Park Bandshell. There are outdoor venues or great lawns. There are multiple small buildings and, and sites in these parks that we could officially designate as performance spaces. Um, some of them have power, some don't. So we could actually figure out which, which ones are for acoustic only, and which ones might require, you know, the, the, the artists to bring their own, own, own stuff. But if we had a system that allowed us to identify who was playing where and when, we could actually create a directory we could actually help market this. We could create a citywide festival. It wouldn't have to be just music. It could be music and dance and theater. Um, we could uh, then it would give us a reason to establish things like painted circles on the lawn so that people knew where their own pod could sit safely with, at a safe distance from the next pod. Um, we'd have a way to be able to think about ticketing and offering tickets so that we could actually develop a revenue stream that could go back to the artists and help offset some of these course, you know, costs. Um, the city um, over the past summer, you know, it moved a lot of, a lot, a lot of restaurants to move onto the streets. Um, and that was, that was fantastic long, it took way too long to do it. And it's uncertain how long that will continue. Um, Cause right now they're only giving permission until September, but along, along with that, they're closing some of those streets on the weekends to allow for um, more, you know, pedestrian interaction and support those businesses. 
And, you know, why don't we have, you know, a stage at the end of each of those streets? Why doesn't the city have something like a, a mobile stage that's fully set up with sound and all the other equipment that it can park at the end of a block to support this? And then again, why don't we have, you know, marketing to tell, tell, tell folks what's happening and to be able to start generating some economic activity? So I think there's a lot of opportunity to do things here. And then, you know, kind of as, as, as part of that, we think about these underutilized spaces, you know, and I don't want to call them underutilized. The parks are very heavily utilized you know, during the summer and, and warmer weather. And, um, but, you know, there are also um, places like the steps of the Lincoln Center, the steps of the, of the, um, of the Brooklyn Museum, um, the, uh, the, the front of the Brooklyn Public Library or the, or the New York Public Library that could all be used for outdoor performance. So we start to see these opportunities to give artists exposure, to support that, to market it, um, to start to bring people back to the city because it's fun again. And it is what New York is all about, which is being this creative hub. Yeah, I think it's really important for people to to understand that these are not, um, you know, they're great aspirations, but they're possible now because they happened in the past. And that means it's possible again. Um, and I think it also speaks to one of the, the beautiful things about living in New York is that sense of sort of happenstance where you could be three blocks away and hear something in the distance, turn a corner and there's a street fair or there is a small concert or there's a street that's closed because, you know, somebody got the neighborhood block party permit or to your example about Lincoln center. Um, you know, there could be a concert um, out in the concourse there. I've seen several over the years and you could be a few blocks away and not even know, like there's, there's so many New Yorks and there's so many things happening in New York. And it's one of the, the sort of great joys of living there is you could, you could really stumble across anything at any given time. And the idea that the city would encourage that and, and, you know, facilitate that, um, I think would, would, it's, it's incredible, um, for not only for the artists and, and the citizens, but it's just, it's, it, it adds so much to the vibrancy of the, of the city. I, another thing you talked about was, um, the empty real estate and using some of the empty real estate, uh, uh, it's sort of turning it over to artists on a temporary basis. So um, I think you used the luxury condominiums as the example. Um, but that also was something that reminded me um, sort of in a less, uh, in a less surreptitious way of the loft scene. Um, you know, the visual artists mm, yep. actually sort of pioneered in Tribeca and Soho and then that the, the performing artists moved in in the sixties and seventies and sort of took over this unused space and repurposed it into living quarters and venues and galleries and things of that nature. Um, but I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about that part of your vision. Um, it's, it's fun and creative. And I think people would, would really get a charge out of hearing about that. Well, New York has a, right now has a kind of his, a historic um, vacancy in, in the commercial property that hasn't been seen in, in decades. Um, and it's a burden to the landlords is a burden to um tenants who who took on huge blocks of space pre-COVID and now find they don't need it. So there's a lot of, of costs there that a lot of expenses that people are paying to maintain these spaces. And it seems like, and, it's, and on the other hand, there are all these artists who can't rehearse, you know, talking to friends of mine who are dancers or musicians or singers, you know, who, you know, in the, in the confines of their own apartments don't have space to spread out and, and, and practice their craft. So I began to think about this. And going, well, why don't we actually figure out a way to encourage some of these property owners to open up their spaces to performers to, um, to practice their craft? And maybe we give them a tax deduction or tax credit for this. And then I began to think, well, what if actually we were to support things like, you know, digital live streaming performances in those spaces because right now we can't have audiences in a theater, but there's no reason why people can't watch a performance live through digital. So like, and so I think all, but all these things that are, so should be possible. And so it's exciting to me to think about these opportunities. We have all these storefronts that are vacant, you know, 
wouldn't it be great if we had art installations, pop-up stores, you know, maybe a pop-up bar with a cabaret, you know, something to actually, you know, use up the, use the available space and resources that we have to, to both meet the need, but also just to going back to this notion of increasing the vibrancy, you know, of the city. Yeah. And it would certainly, I mean, I think it wouldn't take any stretch of the imagination to see that it would have a downward impact on crime. People would feel safer. Um, yeah. I think that that's, I love all of that. I know we're, we're nearing the end of our time. I, I did want to ask you, um, I mean, there's a bunch more I wanted to ask you about, but I'll, I'll try to, um, I'll try to, uh, to find a few of the more salient points. Um, could you tell me in your conception, um, what's an arts district and, what does what role does zoning and rezoning play in your sort of not only in in your concept of an arts district but um in a lot of your plans for how to um impact the city going forward yeah, a, th- a thriving arts district i think to me means that you have a mix of live performance um maybe filmed performance um it could be theater music but i think having a diversity of arts are important supported by uh, restaurants and retail um, and ideally around some kind of a common open space, like a, like a corn pocket park or something like that mm-hmm. where people can hang out. I mean, I think about, you know, the way that the East village used to feel back in the day or the West village. I mean, remember when the West village had all the jazz clubs, mm-hmm. you know, there was no accident that these places popped up with, this, these kind of agglomerations of performance spaces and restaurants because they are naturally feed, feed on themselves and they support each other. So, you, you know, my dream would be to have these, you know, across all five boroughs in the city where people don't have to think ahead about what they want to do. They say, oh, I'm going to go to, you know, Sunset Park and I'm going to go, you know, see because I know that there's going to be some music or, you know, a theater act or you know, restaurants that I can go to to fill my evening and where I'm going to spend my money. Um, and then it makes New York more of, a, of an adventure. Um, yeah. You know, one of the things that, that we lost pre-COVID was that everything, as everything got more, more expensive, you started to need, you know, reservations and, and advanced purchases of tickets and things like that. And, um, you know, I think in order to democratize the arts, we need to make it much more accessible to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. The notion of, um, you know, you mentioned a sunset park, or I think of Windsor Terrace or even Astoria, all these, all these true neighborhoods that do have what you call the pocket parks, all these little spaces where they could be, or they quite frequently are lined with retail or, or small restaurants and you can add um, a pop-up entertainment component. And it's just, uh, I, I like that vision. I, I would love to live <laughs> back in one of those neighborhoods. Um, all right. If I may, I'm going to sneak in one more question. Um, sure. What role does or can a city play in, in impacting uh, the discussion and the reality around climate change? Well, this in, in New York, um, there, um, there's a local law that has um, uh, essentially requires a city to become almost completely uh, fossil fuel free uh, by 2040. And there's an, a, a parallel uh, law that was passed by the state legislature um, for 100% um, fossil free carbon emissions reduction by 2040 as well. Mm. Um, so those are super ambitious goals. Um, there are, they were, they're going to, they're requiring um, the construction of, of a massive um, wind farm for electric generation um, that is right now currently um, in, pro- in process of being funded. Um, so it is, it is really, it's, it's very ambitious and very, very big. The hard part, and this is where the mayor starts getting involved, is is in all what I would call the last mile problems. You know, we have to reduce the number of cars. We have to especially eliminate, um, you know, gasoline-powered cars. Yeah. Um, we need to um, refit the, the public transportation system, especially buses and, and all the city vehicles to carbon-free. That's very expensive. Um, buildings generate 60% of the carbon emissions in, in New York City. So 
it would mean a massive retrofit of things like boilers and and uh, gas stoves and and everything from you know luxury condos to NYCHA housing. So it's a it's a huge huge lift. And in a time like this, what the mayor can do is start to really kind of paint the vision of what this would mean for the city, for a healthier, cleaner city, and then also position it for, you know, withstanding some of the climate changes that we know are coming, you know, even with the carbon reductions that we have planned. Um, so the mayor has a powerful role as a kind of using the bully pulpit of, of the mayor's office to, to be able to constantly push on this, but then to also work super hard with um, counterparts in, at the state and the federal levels to be able to unlock uh, capital that can be used for these necessary investments. Mm. Well, there's, there's so much I would love to explore with you and so much more I'd love to talk about with you. Um, I thank you so much, Art, for, for taking time today. And um, perhaps as we get deeper into the, uh, the campaign season um, and your time permitting, maybe we could do this again, but um, I really appreciate you sharing your story and, and some of your thinking around your plans. And uh, I wish you all the luck. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Larry, for having me on. It was a wonderful conversation. And next time, let's talk even more about the arts. Thank you, Art Chang and the team at Art Chang for NYC. Thank you, Ant Taylor and his entire team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us an audio message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com join us again next week and in the meantime be safe and stay in touch